it's been a learning curve. I gotta, I don't know. I gotta just get a tweet and ask people to tell me what to do. That's usually what I what I do when I need advice. You referred to yourself as a blogger, which I find really interesting. <laughs> you still you still live in the early two thousands, <laughs> dude. When I was writing this book, I literally kind of thought it through in my head. I was like, you just write a bunch of really long blogs. Like really long blogs, just it's fine. Just do it like that. Because the thought of writing like a book is such a scary idea. Be like, no, 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 just write a bunch of long ass blogs, and it works because I finished it. That was journalist, author, and organizer Kim Kelly chatting with me about her new book, Fight Like Hell: The Untold History of American Labor. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome Welcome to Story Story Battle. I guess let's take it back to your days with Teen Vogue and kind of even a little bit before. How did you get so passionate about labor force in terms of job security, in terms of a lot of your focus is very blue collar centric. Is that come from a personal place for you? Oh, absolutely. Like I'm from a very blue collar union family in rural South Jersey. My dad, all my uncles and granddads were construction. My favorite granddad. I was a steel worker. My grandma was a teacher. My mom worked in a cafeteria. Like, we're pretty... I always say that we weren't blue-collar. We didn't have any collars at all. (laughs) (laughs) Just straight up no collar. So, like, that's where I grew up. I grew up in a really rural area. Just kind of always had that kind of ingrained class consciousness, I guess, because if you grow up... For lack of a, a a nicer way to put it, like poor white trash. Like sure. Well, I, I think my dad would take exception to that. He used to tell us that we were lower middle class. So remember the middle class part. Remember the middle class part. But yeah, that's kind of just always been percolating in the back of my head, right? And I, I knew from very early on that unions were a good thing. Mm-hmm. My dad was would complain about going to meetings, and I knew sometimes he went on strike, but it meant that, you know, we could pay our bills, and when my mom got sick, we had good health insurance to keep her alive. Things like basic stuff like that, that bread and butter union, union benefits that, that so many people in this country could really use. But I didn't really get a chance to do much about that or think about that very much until much later when I was working at Vice. Because I spent most of my life in the music industry, like working as a heavy metal journalist and promoter and, and you know, touring person and basically any job you can think of that didn't involve standing on stage. Did you do that because like you did actually work some like what was your first job you did? Was it a blue collar job? Was it something that you were helping out with your family? <laughs> oh yeah. Well my first job was a dishwasher at the Tabernacle Inn in Tabernacle, New Jersey. I was 16. It was terrible. I was the only girl back there. Uh, everyone was mean to me. And the creepy line cook hit on me all the time. They made me take out all my piercings. But uh, I mean, what else? What else are you gonna do? There's not like a lot going on out there in the woods. And uh, that was my first job. And I worked there. And I worked at CVS in retail. And then I went to college. And basically made my my pocket money by writing for like old. <laughs> like AOL had a metal blog at one point. Like there, huh. were, there were a lot of weird 
I just kind of scraped together money that way. And then when I yeah. almost finished college, I, I left a little early to go on tour with my friend's band and just kind of made a, a career out of that, writing about heavy metal and, and yeah. being involved in that industry for a long time. Yeah, it's a weird trajectory, I know. Well, not not really. In fact, as you're as you're laying all that out, there's so much about what I relate to because I started out working in a cannery. Um, you know, so we would have the product come in from the farmers, the giant truck would lift up and I'd have to get some potatoes and put them on the conveyor belt and test them out. And then that would help grade the, the farmer and how they were getting paid. And then I worked a job where I was sorting stuff out on the line and taking out you know, oh, we hit a button if you see a, a piece of glass or a rat head or something. And I'm the only one there who who was who spoke English fluently. And that's actually was my first interaction with someone who is a native Spanish speaker. And I and then, and now I'm put in this situation where I'm having to try and use some words that I do know and feel self-conscious about it, that I don't know how to use their language, you know? That reminds me of, like, kitchen Spanish. Yes. Like, that you pick up. Where, like, I was one of the only... Well, I was the only girl back there, and I was one of... Yeah, the only people in the kitchen that... Yeah, it was fluent English, and it was... I, I don't... I lost a lot of it, but I was... You, you, caliente is pretty a pretty good word to know if you're in a kitchen. And like, <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's going to be helpful. It's funny because I had that job and then like my own mother, like I come from the same background where like she would tell me when she was a kid, she was maybe 10 or 11 when she was picking strawberries in the fields and they would, you know, freeze the Coke overnight so that it was cold by noon when they were eating the lunches they packed. And that was obviously there's no child labor laws around that time. But that first job I had taught me like that was the first, that was when I joined a union and you start learning about those things. But then I also went to retail. And then I also was doing touring and working with musicians and doing oh things. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you're laying it out, I'm like, no, I understand that. I totally understand that path. You've written this book. I kind of kept waiting for it to get outside of that blue collar environment, but it really stays in there. That's really the labor that you're really focused on. And that meant a lot to see that. I, I was thinking about that, like when I was putting it all together, because you want to put it in everybody, right? Sure. And I guess the way I thought about it was that, okay, there's a lot of media coverage, which is well-deserved, of organizing efforts in so-called white-collar industries, mm -hmm. in whether it's in education or grad student unions or what we're seeing happening in tech or in media, which is where my lived labor experience kind of came out of. I think there's been a lot of really good reporting and writing and attention paid to those efforts. You know, people traditionally didn't necessarily grow up thinking, like, that's what I want to do. You know, the stuff that's that's maybe less um, painted as aspirational. Stuff that's all, all work is important work. All work is hard work. But I, I don't know. I just have always felt drawn to people that work with their hands mm -hmm. and their bodies and who maybe felt like they weren't necessarily afforded other opportunities. Like mm -hmm. I write a lot about agricultural workers and domestic workers and workers whose labor is criminalized. We talk about sex work, people without documentation, mm -hmm. people who are in prison. I don't know, I guess there's, I just kind of felt drawn to, to writing about that world because that's what I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And those are the folks that get left out of the conversation a lot of the time. 
They're the folks that get left out of the conversation and they're also the most necessary workforce that keeps everything flowing. I mean, you're getting into harvesting. Uh, you're getting into people who clean. It's what allows our society to like, function. And yet, yeah, we do forget about it. And yet somehow... So I used to get into arguments with an acquaintance who said he didn't believe in minimum wage. This was his just whatever, whatever privileged version uh, place he was coming from when he would talk about it. And I would get really offended on behalf of like my younger self who had to survive it. And I didn't lack, I, oh, I lacked, I didn't lack the courage to ask my manager for, for more money. In fact, I did ask, but, and I was able to earn like maybe 1027 at one point. And then my next job, I was only able to earn, it was back down to like 840. And all they could do was afford to give me five or 10 extra hours, which is what, maybe an extra 80 bucks a week, 60 bucks a week after taxes. And it felt like they were robbing me of my life in that situation because time outside of that job, I was exhausted. And you're putting yourself through school, you're forcing yourself into weekly therapy, whatever you're trying to do at that time. And you just want to have this job that like secures you. And so you can live your life. I knew people in their 60s who had worked in factories their whole life and they had like $5,000 in their 401k and they're 65. I don't know how something like that has been allowed to happen so far across the board. And rationale, you see that in, in the world of say fast food and restaurant work where I, th I think specifically in fast food where the labor that they do is so devalued that it's become a punchline. You know, the burger mm -hmm. flipper trope, like, oh, mm -hmm. watch out, you might end up at McDonald's. There are folks who are grandparents who are supporting multiple generations of a family who work there because the system isn't set up to give the same opportunities to everybody. Like this mm -hmm. idea of the American dream has never applied to everybody. My dad and my uncles and my granddads, like if they hadn't been part of a union, they wouldn't have any money. They didn't go to college. They, they're just hardworking people that figured out something they knew how to do, got involved in the union so they had some protection, and now they're doing okay. Like that's mm -hmm. how it should be. You should be able to be okay by putting in a decent day's work. And that's just not how things are set up. It, it is hard to have hope, but I mean, I think I'm going to paraphrase, but, you know, Mariam Kabas, the prison abolitionist, and she says, hope is a discipline. So you got to put a little work into it. You have to believe that something will happen, something will, something will change, because otherwise you just give up, and that's how the bastards win. There's a lot more conversation ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound, and I'm chatting with author Kim Kelly about her new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. This is something that appeals to me so much about writing about labor and working class histories, because we have won so much over the years. We, like There have been so many victories and so many defeats and so many brutal struggles. Like Nothing has ever been easy for working people and for poor people. But we have won. Like, it's happened before. It can happen again. Like I think there's a million examples in the book I could point to, but one that that I really like. So in the 1940s, there's a whole long history that got them to that point, but whatever. In the 1940s, there was this massive strike on the sugarcane plantations in Hawaii. 
And the workforce at that point was majority immigrants from different Asian countries, China, Japan, Korea, a big Filipino population, also Puerto Ricans, and really just a hugely diverse workforce. And the thing that united them was that they were all being treated like shit by the white plantation owners and the white and European people that were employed to work as overseers called Lunas as these folks worked in the fields. And they had a union. And that was something that really tipped the balance in their favor when push came to shove. Because the bosses had this policy of trying to segregate the different types of workers based on language and country of origin. So there's like the Filipino camp and the Korean camp. And they did this, which many bosses throughout history have done, as a means to prevent workers from organizing and from finding common ground and seeing each other as comrades instead of competition. But during that strike, those organizers and the the members involved they realized what was happening. They're like, okay, well, we have to bring everybody together and cross those cultural barriers and language barriers and really kind of work towards this goal as a group, as one people, as one mass of workers. And they did. And the workers came together and they won. They won against these incredibly wealthy white landowners who owned much of the of the islands and probably their, <laughs> their, their relatives probably still do. And they won. They were people that were not expected to fight back, that were not expected to organize. Their intelligence was devalued. Their contributions were devalued. They were exploited. When they stood up and tried to fight individually, they were punished. They were murdered. It was a terrible scene. But when they all came together, they brought Big Sugar to its knees. And there's still an incredibly strong union tradition in Hawaii. We, we've been here before and being able to harness that collective power like that, that's available to all of us. You know, if you work almost anywhere, you and your coworkers, when you work together on something, you can get shit done. Like one person can't move a mountain, but a dozen or a hundred or thousands can at least get a raise. And we've seen this throughout history, like workers being separated by race or by gender or by national origin. Like it always benefits the boss to keep people apart because once they come together, they realize they have more in common than what separates them. I mean, this makes me think even just in my own experience working at Vice uh, when I was the heavy metal editor and uh, <laughs> a little bit of a black sheep advice in like the late 2010s. And I didn't really know anybody and I kind of kept to myself and, and every little editorial section kind of kept to itself. And it was, it was a little lonely and I didn't, you know, I just kind of went to my job and went home. But when the union efforts started happening, we started talking more and seeing that we shared so many concerns and gripes and grievances and had such similar experiences, no matter whether we were writing about sports or editing stories about dubstep or doing the stuff I was doing, which is mostly writing about anarchist black metal. Um, there's a lot that brought us together. And throughout that experience of organizing and bargaining and fighting for that contract, we all became so much closer and such a more cohesive unit. And it was really beautiful. Like that was the best thing about working there, the union, because the union was just my coworkers and my coworkers became my friends. 
Yeah, and for any anyone who's listening who is a boss or in a manager position and maybe maybe they're new in it, maybe they or maybe they've been in it for a long time and they feel like, man, maybe there is a way I can improve on this. But like actually fostering that teamwork and finding ways to keep morale up and keep people together is actually far more impactful than trying to make them competitors against one another anyway. I would have a boss who would come in and if everyone was doing good work for lunch, he says, I'm I'm buying everyone in the warehouse pizza. It's a very, it's not necessarily like replacing the fact that one of those workers had just had an annual review and only got 12 cents. Yeah, there were a lot of issues at that company. He and he'd worked there for 15 years and that was his, you know, his annual raise. Cool, I get 12 cents, right? And one person was like, oh, I got six cents. And then really what your workers are doing, they're gaining that comradeship based on like, oh, you're getting screwed over? Oh, you're getting screwed over, cool. We, you know, obviously there was that other part of the company, but the part of the company that was working was this manager who was in a very limited position. He was at least focused on how can I help these people feel appreciated today? How can I at least acknowledge their work? Those little things go a really long way versus just saying, oh, I need them all to just stay in their corner and not commiserate among one another, I guess. I had a temp service that sent me around. I was a, I was a janitor at a hospital at a graveyard shift at one point. And then I just floated from job to job for quite a long time. And I partly because I well, I wanted to be doing something, not this. I didn't I didn't know if even podcasting existed. Not saying that it's, I don't like it. It's just I didn't expect it. I wanted to be writing. I wanted to be playing music. I wanted to do those things. I didn't want to do what everyone else in my family was doing. I didn't want to do the manual labor. Mm-hmm. But you still being immersed in it and being around people who have worked in it for five years or a decade or several decades, you learn so much. And it was something that a lot of my friends in school, I remember 15 and 16, and I'm doing the cannery job over the summer and they're not having to work or they're getting a brand new car from their parents or something. And I'm like, I wish that was just everyone was forced to work in a job environment like that just for a little bit to get a taste of people. Every person should work in a restaurant and should work customer service, should work retail. Like you need, it shapes well, first, it teaches you how to be a person. Yes. And how to deal with having horrible bosses and, de- and dealing with difficult people at work. And I think it teaches you some empathy, too, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. like, if you don't have to deal with people that are nothing like you, then, of course, you're not going to see them in the same light as if you're, like, engaging with the public and people who have different perspectives and different lives than you all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, people with public-facing retail jobs or service work jobs or restaurant jobs, like, you see so many I mean, even in uh, like well, where I was working in a restaurant, it was it was pretty homogenous. There's not a lot going on in rural South Jersey when I was 16, <laughs> but even then, I met different kinds of people, sure. and that impacted the way that I saw the world, and you know, helped me out as I eventually left the forest and tried to make my way in the big wide world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the thing I like doing the most is if I'm out having dinner or lunch or something, and something gets. I don't know, miscommunicated on a meal or they're like, oh, I forgot this one thing. And I sometimes I can tell the person who is going to deliver me this news looks terrified <laughs> oh, <laughs> because they look yeah. terrified. They're like, please, I hope you're not going to be upset. You're and not one of those. No, I, I actually I love just, oh, I'm going to be the best person you could be telling this news to. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and you don't get that if you're not coming from that experience. Because you, you don't get how much it matters to be 
nice. Like, yeah, if someone does an absolutely horrible job, like, <laughs> okay, that sucks for you a little bit, but you're the one who is who can go out and pay for that meal and have that experience. Sure. That's that person's job. Maybe cut them some fucking slack. Exactly. What kind of on a personal level I was really excited to dig into because I didn't know anything about it was the intersection between the disability rights and disability justice movement and labor because that's not a connection that you necessarily uh, see written about or see presented very often. And it's something that matters a lot to me because like, I'm a disabled person and I have a little bit of a rare thing going on. So I don't really see people like me out and about in the world. And there's not really a lot of accommodations for people that have my specific little issue, which is fine because there's not very many of us. Well, actually, it's not fine, but it's not something that impacts me negatively that often unless I'm trying to like, I don't know, open a jar. Um, but all that to say, I, I really, really enjoyed researching that chapter and talking to folks for that chapter and just looking at the ways that disabled folks have been on the front lines of every, I mean, every social movement, every movement for justice, but specifically in the labor world, because something that I think is important to note is that, and, and we, we've been seeing that happen throughout this pandemic with, you know, with long COVID, with all the complications people are dealing with, is that everybody is only temporarily abled. Eventually, that status is going to change, whether or not you're born that way or it's something that, you know, manifested throughout your life. And when we talk about that from a labor perspective, one of the big sections in that chapter was about coal miners who are dealing with black lung. This is just horrible progressive lung disease that has claimed so many lives and continues to claim so many lives and left so many people unable to work, unable to function, fully disabled. And it was it was not nice. It was satisfying to be able to kind of pull those threads together. And I'm really interested in learning more about that in a way that occupational uh, illnesses and occupational occupational uh, injuries and you know work related disabilities have impacted the way people live and work because I think that's something that maybe gets left out of the conversation right like my granddad died because he got mesothelioma uh, lung cancer from breathing in asbestos in a steel mill for 20 years you know things like that like just seeing the way that workers bodies are treated as we're, we're treated like machines right whatever application to which we're put towards we're treated like machines and when they break down you stop having value and what happens after that and that's those are questions i'm interested in, in uh, digging more into your employer should hopefully be invested in the if they're going to treat you like a machine at least invest in the care of your machine yeah there's, <laughs> there's no right to repair when you're <laughs> you know when you're made of flesh and bone My hope today is that anyone listening, if they're a boss or manager in their position where they think they could empathize a little more, or there's something that we've touched on today that maybe they're like, hey, maybe I could actually approach things a little differently. Or if you're a worker and maybe your other workers, you're thinking, huh, I don't think any of us are happy. Maybe we can all become, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to remember, not competitors, com what was comrades? Comrades, yes. Yeah. Let's all become comrades today, and let's change this fucking place. Let's make yeah. it. Let's make it better, right? Because there's so many ways to exert collective power. You can. I mean, I'm very pro-union. It'd be great if you could join a union or organize a union, but you don't necessarily have to do that if you want to make a change. You and your 
coworkers can just get together and ask for a meeting, deliver a petition, do a social media campaign. Because a lot of workers aren't able to join unions because our labor laws are pretty fucked up and they're stuck in the 1930s. Right. So, like, there's a lot of ways to exert pressure on the people who are standing with their boots on your neck. Like, there's a lot of different options. Right. And I just hope that there's a... I mean, my book isn't like a how to change the world manual so much as like, <laughs> here's how a bunch of other people change the world. Like right. what in here applies to you? Maybe you could do that too. There's a little bit more conversation ahead. We'll be right back after our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Kim Kelly, and we've been chatting about her book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Growing up and being involved in the heavy metal world forever, like you learn, you get a really good education on hard work and empathy and relating to people. I sold merch to drunk people for four years straight. You learn a lot about uh, customer service and retail. And, and even just being involved in that world, like as a writer and as a fan, as a participant, just seeing, yeah, now now there, there are metal bands out there who are explicitly leftist, who have pro-labor songs or pro-worker songs. Like it all, it all makes sense to me. I don't know if my biography makes sense to everybody, but I'm having a nice time. I thought what really opened me up over the summer is when I would listen to Toxicity. <laughs> that was the first band shirt I ever bought when I was 12. Hell yeah. And Prison Song <laughs> opens up and I'm like, oh my God, what's going on with our country right now? I loved it. That stuff gets in there. Like listening to Rage Against the Machine and System of a Down and stuff like that when I was a little baby. And then getting into Napalm Death and just finding my way through all the bullshit to find like the good heavy metal that was angry about the right things. Being on the road and carrying your equipment or touring or being among people, you are already having a very earthly experience that you would have in manual labor. Yeah, the connection is implicit. And even even just in practical terms, most musicians have a day job. And in the metal world, that means you're probably working construction or maybe you have a business or you're a tattoo artist or you work in a bar. Those are like the top four that everyone does to make it work. Very few people can make a decent living playing music. And I wish that wasn't the case, and it shouldn't be the case. And I'm really glad that there have been so many efforts, especially recently, by musicians to come together in, you know, in labor organizations and in unions. The name of it is escaping me, but there is like a fledgling union effort for music workers, and I think it's just it's just incredible to see that kind of thing, where people who are told, "Well, your job is fun," or it's not even really a job, or you're just playing around, they're like, "Well, no, this is work, and we deserve to be treated well too." Thanks to Kim Kelly for chatting. You can pick up a copy of her book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, at your local bookseller. Thank you to Joanna Pinsker and our friends at Simon & Schuster and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinators, Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineers, Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. 
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.